Um, I, uh, I was, I struggled a bit with what to, what to say this morning. I, I have, I, th- I feel like, uh, two hours of stuff that I would like to say, and I'm not going to do that to you, uh, obviously, but so, uh, what I'm going to say may feel a little disjointed, but there's some things I kind of want to get out. So it's not going to be a masterful message that at the end ties together. I don't think. That's just a fair warning. Well, I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, last night and the sort of uh, prayer time. And I don't know if that was a stretch for any of you or not. I grew up in a church back in a church uh, denominational heritage that did not really believe in an active Holy Spirit. Um, the doctrine was called uh, cessationalism, not sensation, but c- ceasing, that the Holy Spirit's Work in the world ceased after the apostles died out. And so there were no more miracles. There was no more hearing from God, all that kind of stuff. And the reason my my denomination actually started with a sort of charismatic outburst. And so it was like that for a generation. And then I think the second generation couldn't figure it out, couldn't access that stuff. So they just decided that it was wrong. And the seminary actually went to taught that it was demon possession. They still believed in like supernatural demons doing weird stuff, but God couldn't do weird stuff anymore. Um, so (laughs) that's what I grew up with. And, uh, like I said early on, I am a bit of an agnostic. There are days I wake up and I can't access belief in a personal God. And so I fake it. And usually by the end of the day, I'm okay. Um, but I do struggle, uh, intellectually sometimes with the whole deal, but I've never found anything better. And on my atheist, atheistic days, I'm actually very depressed. Um, it just doesn't work for me at all. That to say, I'm very skeptical of anything that feels hocus-pocus and uh, magical. And yet, I can tell you, as, uh, as someone who's researched Jesus a lot and the early church a bit, there's no way around the fact that the early church fully believed in the uh, divine uh, sort of interaction of the Holy Spirit to do things that may seem unnatural or spiritual or whatever. And so what I want to encourage you guys to do is to go home and not be afraid to explore some of that stuff. And you don't, you don't have to be weird about it. You don't have to, you know, Ryan's going to, doesn't have to start wearing like gold jackets or anything like it, but, um, you can, if you want, uh, (laughs) <laughs> or handkerchiefs. There is a market for handkerchiefs, though, if you want to make a quick buck. Um, don't make it sensational, but but don't don't be a sensationalist. Don't believe it doesn't happen. I think I learned this the hard way by be- becoming a pastor in Vegas and not being able to explain away some of the things that God was doing. And I told you early on that uh, I had this church... That started with 60 people, and it grew to like 600 in like 18 months. And then it grew to 100 in six months when I killed it. But um, I'm not going to talk about that time. Uh, It came time, we decided we wanted to be an elder-based church. And elders mean old people. And we didn't have any old people. But we selected six elders from among us to be leaders. And before that, I was just kind of the leader. And I wanted to get away from that as soon as possible. So about a year in, there's about 200 of us. I brought these six people up on stage, and I was one of them, so there were seven. 
And with me, I said, we are your elders. I know we're not very old. We ranged in age from 21 to 29. Uh, but we were older than a lot. Of, we had a lot of teenagers that just came by themselves. And, and I said, so this is the job of an elder. When you don't know how to be a Christian, just watch what we're doing and do what we do. And so our job is to try to live that way. And so I don't know if that was a good thing to say. I was 25 at the time. I didn't know what I was doing. Uh, but I basically said, follow us as we follow Jesus, and we will try to lead you as servants. And so all these young people believed me. And that week, one of the guys we selected was Jeremy. Jeremy was the master electrician at the MGM uh, Grand Garden, so he set up the, all the concerts. He was the 11th person diagnosed with Tourette's Syndrome. He was smoking uh, pot when he was 11 years old. The, one of the very first people he had, he was diag- he would, they made him do it. Like He was experimenting in medical marijuana as a kid. <laughs> um, he is obsessive compulsive and has a photographic. He can't read anything without memorizing it uh, because of his OCD. Um, so he seemed perfect to be an elder <laughs> for me. <laughs> Uh, but he, he loved Jesus and he had never gone to church till he came to our church. He had not been to church at all, came to our church about a year before he was an elder. And when I met him, I, I, he, he's a very, he doesn't come off as quirky or weird. He's actually very, very charismatic, personable until you get to know him. He's still that way, but then you realize, oh, he's got some serious ticks. Um, but he's like, Hey, Hey, I'm Jeremy. I'm excited to be here. I've never been to church before. I'm like, okay, let me explain who Jesus is and stuff. He's like, no, no, I know. I, I talked to him. I said, what? He's like, yeah, I've been talking to him since I was a little kid. I was like, no, but let me tell him. <laughs> like, let's read the Bible. Um, he's like, no, no, he talk, we talk every night. So I, he told me to be part of a church, and I've never done it. So here I am. Do whatever you want to with me. And I thought, this guy's crazy. And then the weirdest thing started happening around him that I went from thinking he was nuts to thinking he might not be. Maybe Jesus does talk to him. The week, I set, the week we set apart the elders, Jeremy called me at 3 p.m. on a Wednesday. And he said, hey, Joe, it's Jeremy. I said, hey. He said, I'm at the Olympic Garden. I know none of you know this, but that's a strip club in Vegas. Um, and I said, this, remember, four days ago I said, watch these guys and do everything they do. Remember that? <laughs> I was like, Jeremy, I, like, I remember saying, I'm so glad you called, man. Like, I'm, I'm glad we have the kind of relationship where you can just tell me what's going on. And, but I'm like, we, I want you to leave and I want you to come, let's have lunch or whatever I said, like, let's get together. He's like, no, no, God told me to come here. I'm like, seriously, dude, that's not going to work. Like you you can't, you can't say that all the time to get out of stuff. He's like, well, I haven't gone in yet. I'm just sitting in the parking lot. I'm like, okay, well, don't go in. Uh, he's like, no, God told me to. He said, he said, God told me to come and pray for uh, one of the girls here. I said, okay. I said, just do me a favor. Just pray from the parking lot. Because I don't want to have to explain week one why our elders go to strip clubs. And he agreed. So he prayed, and then I thought nothing of it. Sunday, we met on Sunday night. Sunday night came around, and I was speaking on who knows what. And um, I noticed at the end of my message, like the last three minutes, a girl walks in and sits in the back row, which all I'm thinking as the pastor is, how many times have we publicized what time we start? And I, I always hated it when people came at the end because I'm like, oh. So I probably talked another 30 seconds just to try to say something she would think was interesting. And then we always sang at the end. So then uh, we sang for about 20 minutes, and that was the end. 
of our uh, service. And people came up, talked to me afterwards, and she came up. And she was the last one in line, and she was just weeping, and she was holding a newspaper. And uh, I was like, what's, what's going on? She's like, I just, God told me to come here. I was like, okay. He's like, well, I felt, we, there's an article written in the Las Vegas Review Journal about our church just being a weird church, basically. And it was written months ago, but she was holding it. She's like, I, I got this article. Uh, my grandma gave it to me months ago and said I should try this church out. And I was like, okay, well, just calm down. We'll, and we took her to the back. We had like a prayer room. Found out her name was Desiree. And uh, she's like, she said, I quit my job this week. I don't have a job. I was like, okay, well, what was your job? And she's like, I work at the Olympic Garden. I'm a stripper. I said, all right. I said, when, when did you quit? She said, Wednesday at 3 p.m. I just had this feeling God was calling me home. And so I'm freaking out. Um, and I was like, you need to meet Jeremy. <laughs> <laughs> so I went and I grabbed Jeremy and I, I put them together. And it's one of the top five experiences of my life. Watching them try, Jeremy, watching her, Jeremy was waiting for her to come. He had no doubt. But watching her cope with the fact that God knew where she was and that an electrician who wasn't a pastor listened to God while he was at work and left work to go to her work to pray for her before he knew her. And uh, that night we baptized Desiree, and she began following Jesus. And uh, her and Jeremy, both of them have had an up-and-down sort of spiritual journey through the last 10 years. But I was able to see uh, an, a moment that is really hard to explain away. I can. Of course, there's always, there's always the possibility that at the exact same moment an electrician went to pray for a stripper to quit being a stripper, that a stripper decided to quit being a stripper at that exact moment, at that exact place. Um, but it seems like the odds are against that being an accident. And... Um, that's when I realized, like, I don't think I should try to lead the church without God being part of it and without trusting and taking some risks. And so some, that season of my life and our whole church was about taking measured risks. And uh, if we felt a nudge to do something, to do it. So my hope for you is that when you go back, um, that this would be maybe the rest of this year, a time where you can look back on the life of your church and say, yeah, we started taking some risks. And so, guys, just, I don't know where all this, I know they moved a lot of the strip clubs in the last 10 years, like around Times Square or whatever, but wherever they are, feel free to go to this year. (laughs) Just don't go in. Um, So my first challenge to you is to continue whatever, whatever felt a little uncomfortable about last night for some of you, push into it all the more because Jesus leads us to uncomfortable places, and that's where we find it's where we find God, and it's where we find life, right? The life. Um, the, uh, oh, man, I, can you read my notes? What's the second line say? Thank you. Ah, thanks. I made it all weekend without using notes. The, uh, <clears throat> the second thing I want to talk about is I hope that you will go home and go back as evangelists. And let me redefine that because it's a word I don't attend. I didn't used to like. Um, so almost all the words I learned as a kid growing up in the church, I found out meant something pretty different 
as I actually asked myself, what does this really mean? And evangelist was one of them. Euangelion um, is the fun way to say it in the Greek. And it's a political word originally. Jesus stole it from that realm. And if I understand it correctly, uh, an evangelist in the Roman world was someone who was sent from Caesar. Uh, when a new Caesar came to power in Rome, they would send Euangelions out all over the empire with one message. Uh, good news, there's a new king, and he loves your province more than anyone else. They would say that to every province. So they would, they, you know, there was no, like, this was, they had to get ahead of the curve. They had to get ahead of the news, and there was no, obviously, no internet or telephones, or there was no even motor vehicles. So they got these guys on horseback, and they went to the farthest parts of the empire. And when they got there, they, they said, Caesar has died, but there's a new Caesar, Nero is Caesar, and he loves you. He, and as a matter of fact, he wants you to know he's coming. He's coming to visit you because you're his favorite province. So just be ready. Be ready when he shows up. Good news. They, the word is gospel. Good news. There's a new king. So when Jesus says uh, to his followers, like in Luke 10, when he sends them out with good news, what he says is that the kingdom is coming, that my reign is coming. So Jesus is setting himself up on par with Caesar, another reason he was killed. And he's sending people out to go to the farthest places and to say, good news, a new king has come. And it's not Caesar. It's Yeshua. It's Jesus, the Messiah king. And he's coming to you. And the difference is Jesus is going to back it up and show up. So um, evangelism then at its purest form is just giving news. It's not trying to convert anyone necessarily. It's just saying the truth of what has gone on. Evangelism is always reporting. Uh, in the Roman context, it was sort of false reporting. But in Jesus's case, I believe that evangelism is the story of Jesus. It's kind of that simple. Like good news. Jesus lived. He was this sort of person. We've been talking about that. He died. He was resurrected. That's the good news. And so as you go, I hope you go as an army of storytellers out into the city to tell that story. And I hope that you uh, let that story be enough and let it rest with people and find the appropriate times to tell it. And as you gather together, I hope you tell each other the story of Jesus. Uh, Jacob said I could speak on whatever I wanted to this weekend, which I was grateful for. And that's one of the criteria I have when I decide to speak places because I hate to prepare new things. Uh, so I said, well, pretty much my deal is if I can talk about Jesus, I'll make every effort I can to get there. Um, all this other stuff's important to me. I could, I guess I could go to a marriage retreat and talk about staying married. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, there's better people that can do that. I've stayed married by the grace of God, but I don't want to do that. What I want to do is talk about Jesus and tell the story of Jesus so that hopefully others will as well. So from what, if the gospel, if that term has gotten complicated in your mind, if you're sort of confused about what it is nowadays, or if it is some sort of sin management trans, trans, transaction, if you would say the gospel is fundamentally that Jesus came and he died so that I could go to heaven when I die, I would challenge you that that's not the New Testament gospel. It's a very, very small part of it. The gospel is that Jesus came, that he lived, that he died, that he resurrected, that he sent the Holy Spirit and the kingdom has come. That, that story, that story is the gospel. Uh, the Austrian uh, philosopher Ivan Illich uh, was once asked, "How do you? What's the best way to create real sort of, uh, you know, change in the world? Is it through violent revolution or is it through gradual reform?" Those were the two options he was given, and he said neither. How you how you create real change in the world is you tell an alternative story. 
And when you tell a story that's different than the story everybody else is telling, you will change the world. And so I would encourage you to devote your lives to telling that alternative story. And um, to think of it that way, instead of trying to convert people to your faith or your belief, honestly will free you up. You, I, I personally don't believe that you're responsible for anyone else's journey with God. Or, I mean, I, I don't want to overstate it, right? We help each other along the way. People can't come to Jesus without someone leading them to Jesus. But your job is not to save people. Like, that's God's job. And if you take it on yourself, you're going you're gonna to be in a bad, bad way. Like, you're going to fail <laughs> over and over. Um, but your job is to be an evangelist, to tell the good news, to tell the story of Jesus. And, uh, and I hope you just, I hope you fall in love afresh with the, with the person of Jesus. And you can't help but tell a story. Um, and the last thing I want to talk about is resurrection. Uh, we don't have time to tell all the rest of the stories in John. There's a pretty big one at the end when Jesus dies and is resurrected. And I actually don't even, I'm not going to tell that particular story to you. I would encourage you to read it. It is the climax. It is the point. There is no good news in Jesus if he's dead. If, it's actually a very sad story if he's dead. And uh, I, my, my, I have gone through seasons of my life where I have doubted the physical resurrection and made it figurative. And, uh, but I generally, for whatever reason, come back and I have to believe in the physical resurrection of Jesus, as weird as it seems. And the reason is, obviously the writer of the book of John believed this. Every Christian in antiquity believed that Jesus physically came back to life. And I I generally, this is the point when I speak to anyone that I just feel kind of like a kook, because it's the craziest thing in the world to believe. Um, I have a new, my, one of my new business partners is a Muslim, and I've never had a very close Muslim friend before. We're becoming pretty good friends. And uh, our initial conversation was a deal we made to not convert each other. And so we've been, it was an awesome way to start. So I'm just learning. And I said, tell me who Jesus is to you. And he's like, well, Jesus is one of our prophets, and we don't believe he's the son of God. And we believe that the, before the resurrection, or I mean, before the crucifixion, that the image of uh, Jesus, the physical image of Jesus, was taken away from Jesus and put onto Judas. And Judas was the one killed on the cross, and Jesus was brought up to heaven before the crucifixion, not after. I'm like, that's crazy. How do you get to that? Like, God bless you, but that's weird. He's like, what do you believe? I'm like, it's just as weird. I believe he came back to life after three days. That's no more weird than some weird, like, face-off remake. (laughs) It's just a weird thing to believe. Uh, But it all falls apart without it. Like, the whole thing falls apart. Early on in John, Jesus is saying things like, "The, the dead will hear my voice and come back to life. The good news, what sparked the Christian revolution was the deep belief in physical resurrection. They actually, they, the early Christians, best I can tell, talked very little about what we would think of as heaven. Last night we talked a little bit about being, am I going to heaven? They didn't really, I don't think they thought that way or talked that way. Jesus talked about heaven coming to us. Every time we talked about heaven, heaven was coming. We weren't going. Heaven is on a crash course with us. We don't go there. Where we go to is a new heaven and a new earth, as best I understand it, 
is what Jesus and the early, most of the early Christians anyway believed. And it's, it's here, which is another weird population issue that I can't get around, but that we are physically resurrected to a new earth and a new heaven. And it's a very tangible, real afterlife that's per- portrayed in the gospel, not floating off in a, another region. Um, and Jesus, the Bible would say, is the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. He's the first one back. Um, and uh, he sort of gave, oh, what's the, when you're at a fancy like French restaurant and they send you out like a spoonful of food and you don't order it, that's got a name. You guys are cultured, you know that. I'm, how do you say it? Amuse-bouche. Nice. So I want to tell you the Amuse-bouche story about the resurrection, and it's the story of uh, Lazarus. So Jesus, uh, so this is the little taste of what is to come, right? Uh, Jesus, who was just, uh, the story before this, this is starting chapter 10, going to chapter 11 then, is that um, Jesus, uh, in essence, at one point gets all fired up and says, before Abraham was, I am. And in that, when he does that, when he says that, he's like, I am Yahweh, I am God. And it's like the thousand things you can be killed for in that world. Number one was, oh, they're claiming to be Yahweh. And so like, it's, it's, un, it's like me coming to you at the end of this weekend and saying, guys, um, thank you so much for having me. I am God. And here's what I'd like us to do from now on. I mean, even to like, you don't only crazy people say that or like, demon-possessed people, or just con artists. And so you can see why all the religious people said, Jesus, you're either crazy, demon-possessed, or you're evil. Those are the only options we can think. But he, he of course, is saying, nope, before Abraham was, I am, which is how God introduced himself to Moses when Moses said, what's your name? He said, my name is I am. I am what I am, or I will be what I will be. My name is that I always exist and always have and always will. It's a long name, but that's my name. And so Jesus claims this. They pick up stones to, to throw at him and kill him, not the first time. And he evades them and he runs away. He runs back to where he was baptized, where he met John the Baptist out in the wilderness. And he's hiding out there with his disciples. And he tells them, we can't go back to Jerusalem. When, next time we go back to Jerusalem, they will kill me. No doubt about it. And so they're hiding. Jesus was very good friends with a family, uh, t- two grown sisters and a grown brother, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And word... Uh, the family knew where Jesus was hiding, so they send word to Jesus, uh, a several-day journey. And they get to him, they say, Jesus, uh, the one you love is sick. And they're referencing Lazarus. Lazarus is very sick and about to die. And it says an interesting thing, John says it this way, because Jesus loved the family so much, he waited two days. And then he told his disciples, we have to go to Bethany. Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. Uh, Bethany's two miles from Jerusalem. So, uh, you know, one of the guys says, well, that's really close. That's Metro Jerusalem. And you said, if we go back, they will, they will kill you. And Jesus says, well, it's light. It's light. And I got to do what I got to do. When the darkness comes, the darkness comes. Let's go. And, uh, one of the disciples says, Jesus, slow down. If he's asleep, he'll wake up eventually. And Jesus, in essence, says, it's metaphor. He's dead. We're going to go wake him up. And in my mind, he starts packing the backpack and uh, marching off, and they choose whether to follow him or not. And it's Thomas who gets such a bad rap. But here's Thomas who says, let's go to Jerusalem with him so that we can all die with him. It's a great movie line, right? And off they go. And before they get uh, just to the outskirts of Bethany, uh, 
Martha's been watching for him and she sees him and she runs to him and she falls at her knees weeping and she's upset with him. She's seen him heal people. And this was his, one of his best friends, her brother. And she says, I know you could have got here sooner. If you hadn't delayed, my brother would not be dead. And Jesus looks at Martha and he says, Martha, um, I'm the resurrection and the life. Think about that. I am resurrection. I am life. Do you believe this? And she says, yes, I believe what you teach us in the last days. We will all be resurrected. But I want him alive now. I don't want to wait till the last days. And, uh, and then uh, Mary comes along the other sister. And it's the exact same scene. She falls at his feet. Master, if you had been here, my brother would not be dead. And at this point, Jesus only says, take me to the tomb. And they come to this cave that they've put Lazarus in with some sort of stone or block or something uh, rolled over it. And uh, all of the Pharisees are there. They're hoping that Jesus was going to come to this because they would weep. It's like the opposite of the wedding where they last a week, funeral last a week. They would weep for days. They would would pay mourners, um, which is a weird thing to us, but there were people that were professional mourners. Um, who would go and weep at funerals. And so all those mourners were from Jerusalem. And there were just a ton of people here, including all Jesus' enemies. They're in the crowd. And he gets to the tomb, and this is where he just uh, breaks down and cries. Um, and and he says, uh, move move the stone. And Martha says, no, Jesus, no, no, no. It's been four days. It's going gonna, it's gonna to smell bad. And he says, move the stone. And he rolled away and then he prays. He basically says, Father, I know that you've sent me. And I say this out loud so that those who are here will know that you sent me. Lazarus, wake up. He would have been wrapped up like a mummy. And so here comes this, you know, waddling guy have you ever have you ever been at a resurrection of the dead you don't forget it right and it's this hush silence and jesus just says basically just unwrap him he's he's probably hungry and remember we talked about jesus popularity going up and down this was a this was a good day for the polls. Everyone there begins saying he's raising people from the dead. This is crazy. The one thing I always tell my church is no one in Bible times thought they lived in Bible times. So they, don't, they aren't sitting around waiting for miracles to happen any more than we are. It, it's mind-blowing. And then we have this conversation with the Pharisees that <laughs> John, more than any other authors, just hates the Pharisees. So, I don't know, maybe there's a little bit of... Anyway, they come, they have a little huddle there. They're like, oh, now we have to kill him. And we have to kill Lazarus. We should probably kill him first so he doesn't raise Lazarus, right? Again, because he'll just keep doing it over and over again. <laughs> but they decide, like, we, we have to do it now. Um, Jesus, is, Jesus is the resurrection which means so many things, but what it means is 
Jesus teaches us in the upside down kingdom that this is how nature works with God. Uh, something is dead and it comes to life. That's normal with God. We think the opposite. We think every living thing dies because we're deceived and we get it all backwards. But with God, dead things come alive. So if you're dead, Jesus can bring you back. He can call you back to life. Um, And it is believing this that has to permeate every part of us so that when we go to the dead parts, this is why it has to, for me, it has to be literal, but it also has to be metaphorical. It has to be both. So we go to the dead parts of our city and believe what God does is bring it to life. We go to the dead parts of our heart that haven't been alive for years and say God has to bring that to life. We go to dead relationships that there's no hope they can ever be friends again. There's no hope this mother and the son will ever connect again and believe that well, God has to bring dead things to life. That's what he does. He resurrects. Um, and so, yes, when I die, I will live again. But if I die now, this is what Jesus is constantly teaching if you die now, you will live again. This is why heaven for him isn't just afterlife. Heaven starts now because if you can die now, you get to start heaven now. So die. <laughs> this is what he's always teaching, which is a hard teaching. Jesus, what do I have to do to live? Die, die, die. Give up. Give up on yourself, and then you'll have life. I'll give you life. But you, every ounce of you has to be done with the life you've created and then I'll give you a new one. Um, And when that happens, you also get this amazing, um, this redemption. It's weird. You you die to yourself, but you end up the same person with life. And God takes all the parts of you that were good, and you get to keep those, and he takes the parts of you that were not good, and he he doesn't just get rid of them. He transforms them. The C.S. Lewis... uh, I forget which book it is. The the story of the demon on this guy's shoulder. Screw tape. Great divorce. So, yeah, the screw tape is the thing. Yeah, but the, the demon that becomes the horse. So um, for the two people that know that, that was helpful, I guess. That's when I started, oh, I want to tell that, but then I don't know it. I just know it's out there. Um, so as we prepare to leave... Uh, Three things. I hope you. I hope you flirt more with the Holy Spirit, and uh, be a little uh, promiscuous with Him. Let let Him do things that you might not otherwise do. And then uh, I hope that you tell the story of Jesus more bravely. But I hope it comes from a place of you just can't help it. Um. And then I hope that when I hope you believe that Jesus really is the resurrection, and that you wrestle with the fact that you are going to live again when you die. And that God brings dead things to life. Um, my big concluding story, I'm going to back up in John and talk about John chapter 8. It's my favorite story, I think, in all the Bible. It's my favorite story to tell. My favorite story is Ehud. But that's just an assassination. There's no redeeming value. Um, my favorite story to tell is John chapter 8 and the woman caught in adultery. And here's the deal with it. It probably wasn't in the book of John originally. It was added later by somebody. Um, because the earliest manuscripts we have of John don't have it. And actually, some of the earlier manuscripts of Luke, it's stuck at the end of Luke. It's just this freelance story that was out there. And so that creates a lot of problems for people who want to argue over inspiration. Is it inspired if we found it later? Somebody just snuck it in there. Um, And so I always, for the first 15 years of my life, I would never tell people that when I told the story. I would just hope they didn't know. 
because I'd want them to think, oh, because I was my biggest fear is my favorite story in the Bible. Is it supposed to be in the Bible? That would be terrible. Um, and then it just hit me a couple years ago. It's my favorite story now because it wasn't in there. Because somebody had to do some covert operating to get this in there. Because this story was so, I, I believe, so important to the early church about the character of Jesus that they could not imagine it not being recorded for history. And they got it in. It was a... Um, it was an oral tradition that had survived three decades about something that Jesus did. And to me, because it may not be canonical, it may not be supposed to be in the Bible, it also doesn't matter to me if it really happened or not. Uh, I like to think it did, but if it didn't, that's powerful too because it means the early church made up this myth to try to explain who Jesus was. And so the very earliest followers of him told this story about him. So let's not worry about if it happened, if it didn't, let's just realize that the early church loved this story because of what it said about Jesus. And the story goes like this. Jesus is teaching uh, in the temple courts. And again, it's his, it's his followers gathered around him. So the usual crew, right? The, the ruffians and the, all the Tony Sopranos and like my friend Desiree, strippers and stuff. And, and Jesus is teaching whatever he's teaching about. And um, suddenly there's this uh, you know, huge sort of distraction and ruckus uh, from one side, and here come the Pharisees, dressed in their best, looking as religious as they possibly can, and dragging a naked woman behind them. Um, maybe by her hair, um, she's weeping and screaming, and I would assume if she's being dragged along the ground, a little cut up and bloody and embarrassed, and she sort of wants to die. And they take her, and, if, and you can imagine mothers shielding children uh, in a world that was so, so, you know, modest. To be dragging a naked woman around town is, is crazy, right? So there's people running away from it, and they throw her at the feet of Jesus, between Jesus and the people he's teaching, and they surround him. They've been looking for an opportunity to trap him, and they found it. Um, this is what they say. Sorry to interrupt, Jesus, but we found this woman in the very act of adultery. Now, the law of Moses says that we should stone such a woman. What do you say? It's a good trap. Because if he says, uh, if he says, hey, man, I'm Jesus, just have grace. If he goes all hippie Jesus on him, and like, it's cool, everybody messes up, no big deal. Um, then he is breaking the law of Moses, which is a capital offense. He can be killed right now for giving grace. On the other hand, if he becomes a literalist and he says, yep, she deserves sin, let's kill her, let's do this. Um, on the other side of her are all of his followers, who many of them have the same job as her. Like, they're just as bad. And they will immediately turn on him. So he's really given two options, to give grace and uh, be killed or to tote the line and lose all of his followers. Either way, the Pharisees win. And what he does is he thinks. And he bends down and he begins to draw on the ground. Um, again, I don't know if you guys can see me, when, but he, he's doodling, which is how I think. So I project that on him. Maybe he's just trying to figure stuff out. Um, and as he, as he looks up, here's this woman pleading for her life, 
or just whimpering, but she's right there in front of him. And he says, this is what we're going to do. Whoever's without sin, cast the first stone. And the inference is, and then I'll, I'll join in. We've heard this story probably, most of us, all of us. It's become sort of a popular story just in culture. But um, I used to always think when I heard that Jesus saying, who's ever without sin to cast the first stone, that he was saying, look, we've all sinned one way or another. So you've told a lie, you've cheated on your taxes, whatever. This is the same. Every sin's the same. That's what I used to think it meant. I don't think that anymore. Um, it was actually very rare that a woman would be killed for adultery because uh, the law specifies some very, uh, you know, very specific things that have to happen for the capital offense to occur just so people can't be framed. Um, and the first one is that you have to have two witnesses. So two of these, and witnesses are hard to come by in this sort of crime. You have to, have, you in essence have to be you have to walk in on it or you have to be peeping toms or maybe the Pharisees set it up. Maybe one of them took one for the team and was the guy because the guy's nowhere to be found. And so there have to be two witnesses. But even assuming that they got that part, the law also specifies right in that section about this that if you are guilty of the same sin, you cannot be one of the witnesses. The same sin. If you are guilty of sexual sin, you cannot be a witness against someone who sins sexually. You discredit it yourself. And so when Jesus says, let him who is without sin cast the first stone, now I tend to think he's saying, okay, let's let any of you who haven't committed this kind of sin cast the first stone. And that's actually much more of a gamble for the poor girl. Because if just one of them has been sexually pure, he can, he can throw the stone. I think that's what it means. Maybe it means the first thing I said. But regardless, this is what happens. Nobody does anything. One by one, starting with the oldest. They have more time, right? They've been around a while. They drop their stones. And they walk off. And there's nobody except the people Jesus was teaching and a whimpering woman. And he comes back down to her and he lifts up her face and he says, uh, Hey, where'd they go? Hmm? The men who accused you, they're not here anymore. And I don't accuse you either. But stop it. Hmm? You can't live that way. Don't sin like that anymore. Okay, go on. Where whoever inserted that in the book of John (laughs) puts it, the very next sentence that is in the book for sure is Jesus looks up and says, I am the light of the world. And if anyone lives in darkness... I will bring light. To me, this story is Jesus. And that woman is 
us. And those Pharisees are us. And resurrection is being that dead, that close to being stoned, and Jesus stepping in and saying, I don't condemn you either, but stop it. Stop it. You're killing yourself. This life is not working for you. It's not working. Go and sin no more. Don't live like this anymore. Um, to me, that is um, the Cliff's Notes of the book of John. That story is microcosm in my life. And I've been the Pharisee. I spent a good chunk of my life looking for people to stone to take the attention off myself while my sins were in the exact same area and just as bad. But I hid them with my religiosity and then I've been the, I've been her. Just totally lived a rebellious life for myself. Um, and it was empty. And uh, it took me a long time because I grew up religious to give up. Uh, but thank God I did. And I don't feel like I deserve anything. Uh, I'm still kind of a mess. But all I have really is Jesus. All I have is the hope of resurrection. All I have is that seeing I am being resurrected a little bit every day. I'm actually slightly less annoying to be around than I was five years ago. Uh, I'm actually a little more patient and kind, and I do lead with grace more than law now. And I have my terrible days. But I'm being resurrected into something slightly more like Jesus and slightly less like that jerk I used to be. Um, and it will culminate, I have to believe in faith. At some point, my heart will shut down, my brain will quit working, and they will put me in some box, hopefully one that's not very expensive because I don't care. And I will rot away, and I will be nothing, it would seem, until the Holy Spirit breathes life into me. And in some mystery that cannot be explained, I will live again because Lazarus teaches me that, and ultimately Jesus teaches me that. And I, I cannot get my head around it except to think I'm going to have a lot more time to do some stuff I want to do. And I don't have to worry about death as much. And the early church grew because they didn't worry about death. Because life, heaven starts now, and on it goes. Let's, uh, let's pray, and we're going to prepare to, uh, to take communion. I think you guys know the drill, how to do that, right? Um, but let's, let's kind of prepare for that. And just kind of be in a prayerful state and, uh, and just let me, let me bring some things back to your memory. When we first meet Jesus, there's John the Baptist preaching. And he points and he says, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. When he does that, he's referencing all the way back to Exodus. And he's saying, this is the new Exodus. Jesus is the new and greater Moses. He's the one who's going to lead us out of captivity. And he himself is the lamb, which is the lamb that was slain before the Passover, where the blood was put over the posts to rescue the people from death. He's the one who will rescue us from death. He's the lamb, the lamb of God who's come to us. The Jews would celebrate that every year at Passover, right? Take us all the way to the very end of the book, and Jesus is now celebrating Passover with his disciples. There is no lamb, or at least it's not mentioned because the lamb of God is there. Uh, but there is bread and there is wine. 
and the bread and wine represented things to the Jews. And Jesus takes it the next step, and he takes the bread, and he breaks it, and he says, this is my body, which is broken for you. Whenever you eat it, remember me. And they remember back to his, uh, you know, shining moment where he says, eat me, and everyone runs away. And now he begins to sort of explain what that means. You must take me, you must literally take my body into you. And he takes the wine, he says, this cup is the wine of a new covenant, a new promise between us. Whenever you drink it, remember me, this is my blood. And they drink the wine and they, in, and they take the blood of Jesus into them. And uh, he says, uh, whenever you eat this and drink this, think of me, remember me. As he's preparing to die. And of all the Christian traditions that have waned over the years, this one in every denomination remains at some level. We can trace what we're about to do uh, back uh, without missing a single week in history. We can, we can trace it all the way back to that supper, all the way back to the first Christians in the first church. This tradition has never died. It is the tradition where the people of God, the body of Christ, take him into them. And we, we understand that without this, we cannot live. That this is why we will raise again because the risen Christ lives in us. And how we know he lives in us is we put him in us. We, we take him in like we take food and drink because we need him that, that much. And so God, as we come to uh, the table, um, we come so with the story recorded to us in the Gospel of John, fresh in our minds. We come to the Lamb of God to take his body and take his blood in us so that though we die, 